Hello and welcome to the GT podcast. So we are looking at Matthew 26, 1 to 16, I believe. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the son of man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they screamed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me? if I deliver him over to you. So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Luke, over to you. Thanks, Ellie. Um, Yeah, the wild card, uh, I don't want you to get sort of too excited, especially after being teed up for potentially being boring. I think the the wild card phrase could be uh, uh, one that might disappoint. I'm just gonna move that, Ellie, because I reckon it'll fall over. Um, so, uh, but the, the reason we've got into this rhythm is because we're looking at the, the different uh, aspects of, of how we, we worship, how we meet on a Sunday, and we're looking at a word, uh, spirit and love, and, we, and we're using that as a, as a kind of rhythm for each of the weeks. But there's quite often four weeks in a month, isn't there? So we're doing word, spirit, love, and then we have a wild card, uh, which is, I suppose, just gives us a bit of flexibility, because as G2, we want to be a church that is able to think creatively about how to do something completely different that might not fit uh, the regular rhythm that we're going through. So this is what today is about. So we we were looking at this passage and thinking how best to do it and talking about it, wanting it to be multi-sensory in sorts of ways. And you can probably begin to smell some of the senses uh, that uh, will be evoked throughout this talk. Um, and, and maybe it's not a surprise to you that it will involve the oil um, that is in the little J2O things uh, on your table. So you're going to light those later on, not yet. Um, so that's there will be a bit of smell. But what I want to do today is to look at this passage in three sections, because there's kind of three stories. And we're going to stand over here and tell you about the high priests, the, the Pharisees thinking about uh, trying to get rid of Jesus. And I'm going to stand on the other side of the room. We're going to talk about Judas. I don't think... Uh, we talk about Judas enough, if I'm honest. That's, that would be an out-of-context G2 quote, wouldn't it? Uh, we need to talk about Judas more often. It's, all, it's not all about him. Um, but we do need to talk about him. And then we'll 
be talking about Mary and we'll finish with that and, and I'll be here and we'll we'll look at that. Okay, so that's kind of the direction of travel um, and we're going to worship uh, as we go. So it's like three little sections to it. So this passage is, an, um, it comes at such an interesting time um, of Jesus's life. But the way Matthew constructs his gospel, because we've been going so excruciating, not excruciating, very, very slowly through Matthew, haven't we? Um, little bit by little bit. It's taken us, I think we're over 75 weeks now. Um, so it, genuinely. So uh, it's been going very slow. And uh, we will hit uh, Easter, Easter, which is just amazing. Um, but uh, right now, it's about a week before all of that happens. But Matthew writes his gospel by pulling different bits together for almost poetic, like linguistic reasons. It's not all totally chronological. Uh, We kind of know that uh, this this passage where we see the woman anointing uh, Jesus's um, feet or just anointing him for burial is probably Mary because we see that in other gospels. It's sort of the same story. And we know here that it happens at Bethany. But Jesus was in Bethany a week before the Passover and the Last Supper. So it doesn't totally tie together. So we think, so there must be a reason why Matthew puts it here. And I'd suggest the reason is because this woman is crucial to the whole message. She gets it. So we're gonna, that's why we're going to finish with Mary. That's where it ends up. So we think it's Mary because of John's gospel. In John's gospel, uh, he, he says the aroma of the oil filled the entire room. So that's why we're ending there as well. It's very uh, a full-on smell. So, but we're at the Passover. Now, Passover was like a, just one of the biggest parties. It's a huge celebration. And there's these different uh, Jewish festivals that everyone would have partaken in. If you were a male over the age of 12, you were a man in that culture. I know that's a little bit hard for those of us with kids who are 12 to imagine, but nevertheless, that is the case. If you were 12, um, you were considered to be a man. And so any male over the age of 12 who was within a 15-mile radius of Jerusalem had to go to Jerusalem for the festival uh, particularly for the Passover, but also for other festivals that happen, like the Festival of the Tabernacles and things like that. But the Passover is like the big one. It's like the highlight. So everyone comes to Jerusalem and everyone would make offerings in the temple. Now, just to sort of help you again, imagine the, the sort of physicality of what this would have been like. The city swelled by five times the numbers of people who lived there. So it, like over a million people would have been in Jerusalem, which is Uh, for the actual size of the city, was uh, a lot of people. I know we've nowadays got huge urban sprawls that have got more than that in in them. But for the size of, you know, first century Jerusalem, that's a crazy amount of people to be cramming into one city and finding somewhere to stay and whatever. So imagine the hustle and bustle, all all those people have to eat, all those people have to find somewhere to sleep and get something to drink and do everything else that a human needs to do, and that's got to get dealt with somehow. So it's going to be like pretty full on, basically. Uh, They also would have made offerings, and you might have clubbed together with someone else to make that offering if they were part of your family. Um, Josephus, who's a first century historian, writes about this, and he reckons somewhere in the region of let me, get, let me just get the number right, because I always exaggerate things. Right, Josephus says 256,000 lambs were sacrificed in the temple 
that week. So in one week, quarter of a million lambs are killed. And imagine where that blood's flowing and whatever, you know. Also, they're not dead before they're sacrificed. So you've also got quarter of a million living lambs before they're sacrificed. So that also adds to the noise and hustle and bustle of the kind of moment that this is happening in. Uh, so the city was also cleaned up in, uh, I mean, they obviously would have had to clean it after that, but they kind of cleaned it up in a in a sort of, um, what's the right phrase, like a sin sense. They, they tried to make it as clean as possible, a little bit like when we had the 2012 Olympics in London, um, they basically bust all the homeless people off to Eastbourne and Bournemouth and places and put them in hotels because they just didn't want any anything like that to happen. In, it was just wanted all the visitors to see London at its absolute best. That's the kind of thing that they would have done for this festival. They just wanted it to be perceived as just brilliant and like absolutely everything was perfect. So there was that going on. And the Caiaphas and the Pharisees would have been very much part of that. Okay, so I'm going to wander over here and tell you about the um, the Pharisees and what they were like. So their whole demeanour... Um, was to not sin. Their whole goal was to try and get everyone to not sin. So the Pharisees are like teachers of the law and, and religious scholars, but their their belief, the Pharisaical belief was, if we can get no one, if we can get everyone to just not sin for 24 hours, then the Messiah will return. So it's their whole mission and um, way of being is very connected to the their desire for the Messiah to appear. But in order for that to happen, they believed that everyone must not sin for a 24-hour period. But that mission was thwarted every hour because humans sin all the time, don't they? So that's why all throughout the Gospels, the Pharisees are the ones going, don't do that, that's sinful, don't do that. That's why they're really annoyed when Jesus says things that are blasphemous in their eyes, but they weren't because they were just true. But they're really annoyed because he, he's basically taken the clock back to zero again every time he does something like that. Now, some people uh, in the Pharisees' worldview were just, by nature, sinful. There's nothing they could do. Like, so, for example, a leper was unclean, or a woman who was having her period would be deemed to be unclean. Or various different types of people, they would have said, say, for example, somebody with a mental health condition or something demonic or something like that. They would just say, you are just unclean just because of who you are, just because of your state of being. So they then worked out, which is, they don't get this from, from the Torah or from Scripture, but lots of Pharisaical law was written by man, written by people. Some of it was written like a couple of hundred years before Jesus. So they decided, we're going to not count those people. So these people will be referred to as, like, they're basically spiritual zeros. They had their own words for it, but that's effectively what they're saying. So they're like, these people aren't included in the group of people who need to not sin. So if we can get everyone else to not sin, then Jesus is going to come back. They're obsessed with rules and regulations, the right way of doing things. Um, And that probably, when you read uh, about Nicodemus, that's what makes his story even more incredible because he, he is seeking, he's one of those religious leaders and teachers of the law, and he does seek de- uh, desperately to, to know Jesus. And that's when Jesus talks to him about being born again and he doesn't understand what he means, that little interaction. 
He's a real seeker. But that must be so hard to come out of that worldview to then believe that Jesus was who he said he was. But the thing is, when, when we read about the, the, the Pharisees and we kind of think, ah, oh, I don't know if maybe you're, you're like this. I'm, I always think of the disciples, idiots. Why did they never get what Jesus was saying? It's so obvious. He keeps saying it. Like right at the start of this passage, it says, uh, he, he predicts his death for the fourth time uh, in, in Matthew's gospel. This is the fourth time he said it. It's like so obvious. He even says, in two days' time, the Son of Man will be crucified. And it still doesn't go in. They still don't really get what's going on. Um, and in the same way, I look at the, the Pharisees and I think, how did you miss this? Like, how is it not so obvious? But it's, re- it's, it's, it's a shame if we write it off so easily because it speaks to us a lot more if we can, if we can get over ourselves and spot how we too, each of us, do kind of have principles that we wish everyone else lived up to a bit more. If we're really honest with ourselves, there are things where we think, well, so it could be something like this. I wish everyone was a bit more hospitable. I wish everyone in our church was a bit more welcoming. If everyone was a bit more caring, if everyone was as caring as I was, which is probably a bit of a a root of it, if everyone was more generous, then imagine what we'd be able to do then. If everyone was more kind, the whole thing would work a lot better. If everyone read their Bible uh, more regularly, and if they prayed more and worshipped more exuberantly and clapped more often, I don't um, (laughs) If everyone went to small group every week instead of being flaky, if everyone turned up on a Sunday every week, then this would be so much more easy. Now, those are just my examples (laughs) of things I've found myself thinking every now and again, thinking if this did happen, but those aren't helpful thoughts because they're judging thoughts, basically, where I'm going, if everyone else did this, it'd all be much better. And the only person I can take responsibility for is myself. So I think those thoughts, I'm not saying I'm a Pharisee, but those, or each of us have ways where we can basically say, if everyone did what I think it really matters more, then the whole thing would, would flow a lot more easily. So they start to plot they, and they start to plan. And um, the, uh, the Pharisees need rid of Jesus because he keeps resetting the clock to zero and blaspheming, and this is a huge problem. So they start to plot and plan. So they're plotting and then we're going to talk about Peter's, uh, Judas's plotting in a minute on the other side of the room. But first of all, I'd like you to stand because we're going to sing in Christ alone. There's a line in that, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. But so often it is us scheming away, thinking this, we've got an idea of how it should be. We've got a plan for it, how everyone else should be and how everyone else should act in life. But let's worship Jesus because he is the one who is worth everything. Um, Our schemes, our plans mean nothing. And because of Jesus, because of how, who he is, there is nothing that can happen that will pluck us from his hand. Amen. 
take a seat. So the religious teachers and the Pharisees are over there. And over here, Matthew has put Judas, uh, like sort of evil bookends with Mary in the middle. Uh, So Judas, I think we properly miss him if we just refer to him like a baddie. So often he's just the pantomime baddie. Um, He is bad. Uh, (laughs) I'm not saying he was good. The the path he chose uh, was obviously horrendous and it led to the betrayal of Jesus. It was part of the story. Um, But what a fascinating character. It's so easy to miss him and what's happening. Uh, It's so easy to to wonder whether maybe um, he was teed up for it. Like Jesus did know that that was going to happen. It wasn't a surprise to him. He he almost had to give him a little tap on the, you know, uh, come on, you need to go and betray me, didn't he? He has to like he predicts it, and Judas, is, Judas even says, "Is it really going to be me?" And he's like, "Yes." That's, I mean, that's as about as direct as you can get, isn't it? He's like, "Yes, it is you. Um, why don't you go and need, do what needs to be done?" So Jesus definitely knows what's hap- what is going to happen with Judas and what's going on in his heart, and yet he still calls him to be one of his disciples. All of us are invited, no matter what goes on in our heart. And so that's fascinating that Jesus invites him. Um, And I don't think it's like a kind of, um, well, you know, it's necessary for the plot. Like I needed needed a baddie, otherwise it's not a very good story. It's just that there is stuff in the purposes of God, which is beyond what any of us can fathom. And it was always going to happen that way. And yet in the... unfathomable mystery, Judas still has choice in it. We see after uh, he goes and betrays Jesus to the Pharisees, after that, uh, it says, the enemy then entered him. So in other words, the enemy wasn't in him beforehand. So in other words, he wasn't uh, possessed. He wasn't owned by the enemy beforehand. But in doing that, then the enemy entered him. Um. Francis Bacon says a bad man is worse when he pretends to be a saint and I think that's probably what's happening with Judas's character there's there's something in him that's just he has never quite been set right in terms of his trust and his desire for Jesus to be the kind of messiah that he really wanted so that's what's happening is Judas wanted uh, Jesus to be a different kind of Messiah. He wanted him to be a strong kind of Messiah that was going to get rid of the Romans because for him, his worldview is about power and it's about uh, getting rid of them so that we could then live a Jewish life in his worldview. So both of these bookends are about the Messiah and who Jesus isn't. They're, They're wanting to betray him because he's not the guy they hoped he would be for different reasons. And so when Judas says uh, we could have given this money uh, to the poor, well, in, in uh, Matthew's gospel, it says uh, one of the disciples, but then Jesus in Matthew's gospel goes on directly to speak to Judas about it. And in John's gospel, he names him as it being the one who said this. So uh, we, th- we think it pretty much is Judas here. Um, he isn't really wanting to give that money to the poor. It's just a catastrophic decision as far as he's concerned. It's just a stupid life choice. It's it's a, a waste. But also he has this financial viewpoint that they could have bought for themselves with that money more 
dominance probably because if you give to the poor then the poor like you more maybe there's something like that going on for him um the word that john uses to describe judas is ecleptes earlier in john's gospel not in this bit of story and he that, that word means he calls him a thief but the original word is kleptes which is where we get kleptomaniac from so he's saying judas was some kind of uh, systematic thief like he just saw a way of like having his hand in the finances and it always fav- he always came out well from it so that was like a, a theme for Judas so then he saw financial security differently and it is juxt- juxtaposed to the way that Mary sees it as we'll get to in a minute but we and, and interestingly, Judas also um, fulfilled a prophecy about Jesus's death uh, in Psalm forty-one, verse nine. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. That's in Psalm forty-one. So this was something that was always in the the, the will of God. It was always going to happen. Um, now. In the same way that we can be a little bit pharisaical, we can all also be a little bit like Judas. There's ways that we can wish Jesus was a bit stronger. We can get disappointed with, why isn't Jesus a bit more like this? Like, you know, I've wondered, why doesn't he just get rid of people's pain? Have you ever thought that? Why doesn't he just... There's loads of people that are struggling with anxiety and with different mental health problems. Why didn't Jesus just fix all that? I don't really get why. Why doesn't he just do that? Why doesn't he just get rid of all cancer? Why doesn't he get rid of our pain? Or why doesn't he just distribute the, the wealth that is in the world better? Like why, why are the rich so rich? It's not fair. Why didn't Jesus sort it out? And it's that particular concern that Judas is raising when he says, why don't we just sell that and give it to the poor? The thing is, that, that bit of oil that she anointed Jesus with was never going to be given to the poor, was it? It was never, it was never destined for that. So it's a ridiculous claim that he makes, but we can all make these kind of claims. So I wonder what it is for you that where you just think, Jesus, I'm really honest. I know you're brilliant and everything, but I wish you were a bit more like this. Everyone will have that kind of a thing. So I'd like you to just spend a couple of moments in silence just reflecting on what that might be. If What would it be if you could have Jesus be a bit different? What would it be? And it's all right to name it. And then what we're going to do is light the candles. Um, I think there's nearly enough for everyone to light a candle. And then if you also light the ones that are in the J2O things, the smell of oil will then begin to become even stronger than it already is. So if you do that, let's just spend one minute just in silence, just thinking which are the ways where I kind of think I wish God was different. And then we're going to light the candles and we're going to say the confession together. Okay, so let's um, say the confession together, uh, which the words will come on the screen. And then um, after we say amen, then if you like to, light the candles. We'll just have another moment's silence after that. That'd be great. So let's say this together. No, we can say sitting. That's fine. Lord God, we have sinned against you. We have done evil in your sight. Okay. Have you uh, managed to get them working? (laughs) 
In some cases, yes. <laughs> okay, so that smell will continue to emanate as we, uh, we go on. So in the middle of these plots, uh, schemes of man, uh, actual men in this instance, not humankind, um, Matthew chooses on purpose to place the, the woman who anoints Jesus for his burial. Um, in fact, it's the, uh, the fourth time that Jesus says he's going to be crucified. So it's kind of a, a culmination. And uh, he places her in the middle of this thing. And it's a, it's a home. It's the home of Simon the leper in Matthew's gospel. Um, and uh, presumably Simon was no longer a leper. Um, he must have been known as Simon the leper for a while, because that seems to be how he's still referred to. But I think he's been healed by Jesus at this stage. Um, Lazarus is also there in, in, in uh, John's gospel with Mary and, and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. Um, he's no longer dead. So this is, quite a, this is kind of quite a gathering um, of people. And they're in this home to spend time with Jesus. They're reclining at the table, which is what they, how they ate. They'd sort of lie down and um, eat at a low-level low table when they were relaxed. So they're in that position um, when this happens. And it takes everyone by surprise, really. So this jar of oil would be uh, probably quite old. It's the sort of thing that would be handed down generation to generation. It comes from a really rare plant that's very hard to get oil out of. The, it's got little needles, like if you imagine a sort of little cactus needle, um, and you get the oil out of the end of each one, you have to sort of squeeze the needles of it. it it's quite hard to come by the oil, and that's partly why it's so expensive. Um, and it would have just been a small jar, and that, and it would also not have had, a, if you sometimes you imagine like a little clay jar with a bung in the end, it wouldn't have been like that. It would be totally sealed in this jar. And so Mary comes out and breaks it and anoints him, um, and he says that it's for his burial. Jesus says that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think um, they, they reckon it's worth uh, the average man's whole salary for a year. So uh, a lot of money um, would have been invested in this. And it, it probably would have been handed down through the generations as some kind of financial security. So if there was an absolute disaster that happened and they were unable to earn or fend for themselves, they could always sell this and live off it. Um, it's interesting that Lazarus died, who could have been a money earner for Mary and Martha, I don't know, but he died and they hadn't broken it then. Uh, they hadn't at least got to that stage. Jesus had, that's the kind of thing that might have meant they would have to break it, uh, sorry, sell it to someone else because it was so valuable. Um, anyway, so she breaks this thing and anoints Jesus with it. And in so doing, she surrenders all of her security for the future. She surrenders her financial wealth and just gives it all over to Jesus because he is worth absolutely everything. And the guys can't understand what's going on. They're like, this is just crazy. But she totally gets it. So that's why Matthew puts her right at the center of the story. And just like it was 
the women who discovered the resurrection first. Um, and it was so often the women who went first in different places in, in the scriptures. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, he does this regularly. And this is another example where he puts her there. So It's so countercultural. I know in our culture, we're used to that, which is great. We're used to women doing brilliant things. But that wasn't the case then in the first century. That would have been so countercultural to put her at the centre of that story. And just like the jar that is broken and it can't then be put back together again, uh, it's kind of the same with us. Only when we're broken can we really surrender everything to Jesus. Now, when I say broken, I don't mean like hurting um sometimes we refer to that word like i feel broken at the moment in in a not good way but in in some ways we build up walls for ourselves and we sort of make we construct our ego and us you know things around us to make ourselves feel safe and the masks we put on everything like that um and and in the gentlest way jesus is able to break those things to say that doesn't actually help you and if but he's not going to do that unless you want him to but when we break, then our lives are able to be poured out. Like Paul says in the New Testament, I'm, I'm poured out like a drink offering. He's not keeping his alabaster jar all together. He's saying, I'm designed to be broken. Just like Jesus was on the cross, he, he was broken. And so his life was able to flow out and salvation came from it. It's the same for us, our offering only really happens when we're willing to totally surrender, which maybe that's for some people that might be a more helpful word than, than being broken. Um, but just complete surrender, surrender of our financial security, surrender of our hopes and dreams for whatever our relationships will be, surrender everything that we hoped our job might lead to or our, our future in any other capacity. But just being able to say, I offer you everything. And there's just a beautiful simplicity in how Mary just kneels at Jesus' feet and anoints him. Um, he needed to be anointed for burial. He just predicted he was going to be crucified. Um, he was going to be killed as a criminal. All Jewish people would be anointed when they died uh, as part of their burial. Um, but that wouldn't happen for criminals. So they were, they were buried differently, which is why she anoints him before he dies. So this prophetic act is just so crucial to the whole gospel story, which is why Jesus says this woman will never be forgotten. And um, there's something in this story that, I, as I've been thinking about it and uh, preparing for, to do this talk, also been watching what's been happening in Asbury, uh, in in Kentucky, um, where perhaps lots of you have seen that story on social media because it does do the rounds uh, nowadays. Um, but for, for anyone who hasn't seen it, there's a group of students uh, who were just in their regular uh, chapel service. Um, not, not, there weren't many of them. Uh, there was some gospel, uh, as a gospel choir that were singing that particular day. And they sung their songs. They got to the end of the service and they always sing a song as people walk out, like a recessional song, I think they call it, while people leave. So they sung that song, but no one left. Everyone just stayed and was worshipping. And so then they, the choir thought, we'd better do another one. So they sung another song, and they still didn't leave. And then, then people stood up and joined in. So then they did another few songs, and they're still there. 
Um, so what has happened is it's grown in number. People have started to hear what's happening around the, the university campus and people are just very moved by what's happening. And uh, I was on a Zoom call with a few of the students who were r- right there right at the start earlier on this week. It was such a privilege to hear their stories. And I was blown away by how simple it was. None of them are like, there was just, there was no... There's no, there still isn't any loud music. There's no loud, there's not lots of instruments or whatever. They, they just have a piano, a guitar and a cajon. That's it. Um, and it's voices. And all they're doing is just worshipping. And as people walk into the room, they're just bowled over by the presence of God. They say it's just so tangible. There was one student who was on this call. It was brilliant to hear his story. He was said, I was a bit annoyed because I was due to be doing a seminar with a guy um, who didn't turn up. We were meant to be like, work, sorry, working on a project together and we'd arranged to meet and he didn't turn up. And I was texting him, where are you? He just didn't answer. But then someone else said, there's loads of people that are starting to gather in the chapel. Uh, there's like hundreds of them going into the chapel now. So maybe he's in there. So he thought, right, I bet he is. I'm going to go and grab him because we've got to get this, this deadline's coming up. So he walks into the chapel and it's just like, bang, the presence of God just hits him. He f- falls on a floor and he just was there for three days after following that. He didn't leave for three days and then probably needed a sleep and a shower and things. So, um, but what's been so amazing is the lack of hype. And I think that's what struck me in the parallel with this moment as the, the woman, as Mary anoints Jesus, it's just a quiet surrender of absolutely everything. And she just gives it all over to Jesus. There's not this, there was no fireworks. And that's the thing I've thought about this Asbury thing it's not fireworks. It's just a deep work. There's just something deep that's going on in people. And it's not about a, a massive show. Um, so I'd love us to worship together um, in that same way for us to lay down our lives, to offer everything to, to Jesus. So if you two want to come and lead us in worship, that would be great. And if you guys want to stand And then let's sing and worship Jesus. Come Holy Spirit into this room. We know you're here. We welcome your presence and just ask you to increase our awareness of you, of all that you're doing. know Holy Spirit that you're able to do all things that you're worthy of it all and as we've looked at this story of the betrayal of Jesus all the plots around it right in the middle of it this absolute dedication we say we recognize we can be on on either side of that sometimes but where we want to be is right in the middle giving everything to you You are so good, God. Come, Lord Jesus. There might be things stirring in your heart as I've been speaking about things that you'd like to surrender, things that maybe have a a hold for you. If that resonates, then um, just, just name that in your heart. You might want to put your hand on your heart or um, hold your hands open as a, a way of surrendering. I mean, that's, 
That's why people put their hands in the air and put their hands out in worship. It just becomes a Christian cultural thing to do sometimes, doesn't it? But the reason we do it is because we're saying we we don't want to hold on to anything that holds us down. We want to be completely surrendered to you to allow you, Jesus, all the praise. sing a song called Surrender and as we sing this it's not just not just singing the words on the screen um, let this be your offering as you surrender yourself